Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Alice Gallaudet-Marais. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Chess Journal podcast. I am Alice Gallo, an intensivist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I have the pleasure of having with me today Dr. Jason Yorki and Dr. Eduardo Mireles Cabo de Villa, and they're going to talk to us about their uh, paper on peripheral administration of norepinephrine, a prospective observational study. Eduardo and Jason, thank you so much for being with me here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Alice. Jason, I was hoping you could tell us about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis and what inspired you to um, do this research study. Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm Jason Yerke. I'm one of the medical ICU clinical pharmacists at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I've been here for, goodness, almost eight years now. feels like it's hasn't been that long, but it's gone by quickly. Um, as far as what sort of inspired me to work on the study, um, so this was something that the the administration of peripheral norepinephrine was something that we had started as a, a quality initiative and quality and medication safety are sort of two of my my fairly major passions in an area where I do a lot of work. So um, I was involved kind of early on in the auditing of our peripheral norepinephrine process to make sure we weren't having significant safety events and then um, around some of the the changes that we made. So for me, it was all about trying to make sure that we could optimize the efficacy of this practice while also making sure that we uh, maintained safe administration for our patients. Eduardo, how about you? Well, I'm Eduardo Mireles. I, uh, I'm a pulmonary critical care physician, and I serve right now as the medical ICU director here at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. In the day-to-day basis, as as you well know, Alice, we have a large influx of patients coming in from the floor or the emergency room or transfers from outside that require administration of vasopressors. And our practice... Um, up to 2019 was that except with the emergency administration of vasopressors in which a line had not been placed that we would not administer peripheral vasopressors. During that period of time, we were also engaged in some other research activities that uh, required administration of pressors in a faster uh, way. And obviously the placement of a central line comes with its time process to ensure that we're doing it in its best of its ways. We were also battling at that time with uh, central line associated bloodstream infections. And this was this came to our, our desk as a potential intervention to reduce uh, the time to administering and stabilization of patients, decrease the exposure to central line placement. And so uh, we thought that it was worth for us a chance to implement into our quality uh, projects. Fantastic. And I was, I noticed that on your paper, you talk about 
three different iterations of your protocol. Would you guys mind sharing with our listeners what what those different iterations of your protocol was and how did your methods to looking into the feasibility of using pressors peripherally, how, how did that evolve? Um, I can start with this, and I, I think Jason can give a, a, a lot of background into, into the process and how we modified it. But uh, it all started with the idea and an um, interprofessional meeting, including our nursing team, our pharmacy, nursing management, and a uh, uh, series of our colleagues in, in, the, in the faculty to discuss if this was something that we wanted to go ahead with. And once that it came to fruition that to say, yes, this is something that we can try. There's other centers that have done it. We started crafting a protocol. And as uh, you all know, the first ideas, when they, you put them into into paper, they sound better, that, uh, but it's very different than when you implement it into our patients. Yeah. So there was a lot of discussions on how to create the protocol, interaction with other centers, how they were doing it. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety in our part from all the all the groups, both uh, the pharmacy, nursing, and and the physician group, regarding the potential of a injury to the tissue that would lead to tissue injury, ischemia, and obviously worst case scenario, some major injury to the limb of uh, of one of our patients. So the first protocol. Uh, reflects a large amount of that anxiety that was that the whole group had about how there was risk and how to minimize it. And so we put in a series of safeguards for the initiation of the pilot of when we were going to do this that would ensure that we would not have any uh, side effects that we could potentially prevent on the group of patients that we were trying. And so as, as you will see our, our protocol, it started with a lot of restrictions. Then we loosened some as we started feeling more comfortable with the implementation process. And then also modified or added all others that we recognized that there were gaps in the way that we were doing things. Uh, and there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, it, it's two years of implementation and uh, there were uh, a series of moments that changed our practice. Uh, I don't know, Jason, if you can talk from your perspective from the pharmacy, uh, how how this process went through. Sure. So I think, um, as Eduardo mentioned, we started this off, I, I don't want to say relatively conservatively, but we, we tried to be very selective in the patients who met the criteria for the protocol to start with to try to minimize as much as possible any real safety risk with this. Um, and then sort of from there, it was extensive, extensive education, as Eduardo mentioned, of our, our pharmacy staff, our nursing staff, our physician staff, essentially anyone who could write an order within our medical ICU got training on this pretty extensively. Um, and then from there, there was a, a real-time or at least close to real-time auditing process. So myself and several of our other pharmacy colleagues who are on the paper uh, would get a automated, uh, uh, essentially, um, health record message whenever an order for this uh, medication through this route was placed. 
Um, and over the next day or two, we would go back, audit our different line criteria to make sure they were met, uh, make sure we were using the correct drug order, and then uh, audit sort of some of the nursing charting for any extravasations. And if there was an extravasation event, we went through and made sure those were treated appropriately. Uh, we had a study team member go to the bedside to evaluate the level of tissue injury. Um, so it was fairly extensive um, on our part, the, the auditing that went into this. Um, and as a result of some of the findings, that's what drove a lot of the, the protocol call changes. So um, what we were finding, especially early on, is that we had a fair number of patients who would at least get started on this who did not meet all of our pre-specified peripheral IV criteria. So we added a page to a nursing supervisor to go to the bedside to make sure these were met um, essentially immediately after the order was placed or as close to immediately as possible. Um, we then sort of tried to evaluate through the auditing process again the impact of those changes on our extravasation rates. And then from there found that even though we had a probably higher total rate of extravasation than the other literature that's out there, that we weren't having any substantial tissue injury as a result of that. Um, so for the, the third iteration, we actually loosened some of the requirements. We removed the time limit that we had placed on this process um, and expanded it somewhat to patients who couldn't directly express pain or discomfort. So this expanded our population quite a bit by including patients who were intubated and sedated or encephalopathic as well. Um, so that was sort of the, the process that we took to get from protocol version one all the way to protocol version three. Thank you so much. And share with our listeners if they wanted to implement something like that, like a peripheral IV um, presser uh, infusion. So what are some of the things that they need to pay attention to? Well, go ahead, Jason. I would say I think the the most challenging piece for us was um, making sure that every provider in our unit was reached in a timely way. So um, a lot of this happened during the, the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, we had a lot of patients. We had a lot of caregiver turnover from a provider perspective, from a nursing perspective. So trying to make sure that everyone was current on the protocol, that the um, sort of safeguards that we had put in place were being done consistently all the time by everyone and for every patient who received this. Um, so I think that was the the most challenging thing just because it took a lot of effort to get it up and running and make this sort of almost a reflex, especially for our nursing staff. Um, I don't know, Eduardo, do you feel differently than that? I, I would add uh, uh, not only the, to the education, it had to do with the way people perceived the moment that we released this uh, method of administration, uh, meaning that I, I remember the first weeks to, to months that we said, well, you cannot now ad administer peripheral norepi through the peripheral. Uh, two things could happen. Uh, one is they wanted to do it on anybody. And so you had patients that uh, within our institution, we have a some criteria that tells us that these are going to be difficult IV access patients that have either edema on the arms or uh, uh, challenges with the with the access, the peripheral access in the. And there were patients that that got peripheral norepi under those circumstances, and lo and behold, they ended up having uh, extravasation. So. There was this desire to to use it uh, because it really decreases the work of some groups. So now you don't have to place a central line. 
However, it increased the work of other groups. Uh, and at that time in our protocol, we had, uh, and we still have checks of the patency of the IV, which is every two hours. And we had added actually the presence of a flush test in which we wanted the, our nursing team to assess that the, the peripheral was patent uh by doing a flush test and seeing bubbles going through the through the vessel and so that comes with a a workload uh for our nursing team uh and so those are unintended consequences of safety that you have to pay attention to so in one side people are going to be pressing to use it uh and sometimes they will press to use it beyond the safeguards that you have established so in the wrong patient or at higher doses and it took a fair amount of education and uh, making the team to be to become a culture for them to say you know you have passed this level which for us was 15 mics per minute and at that level you need to move to a central line or you're going to add another presser that's the time for you to move to another central line or this patient you have stuck several times or you don't have a safety access, meaning uh, if, if the vessel got extravasated, we needed to have the ability to change it immediately to another IV. And that meant that the patient had to do to have two patent uh, available vessels, which means more work and more workload for the team. So you shift some of the, the changes to minimize the presence of a central line and the challenges with it. So that's something that it's not quantified on the paper, but I want the teams as they are going through through this implementation to be aware of, uh, of those loads that are hidden. And Eduardo, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like I, when I go to bedside, if a patient has a central line, I always look at that site. But I don't necessarily look at peripheral IVs. And um, again, a good reminder for our colleagues um, as attending critical care physicians, if a patient is on peripheral vasopressors, to also pay attention to those peripheral IVs, right? Absolutely. Actually, I mean, one of the aha moments for us uh, was the, the rate of extravasation uh, that we had. Uh, we had read the literature that was available in other centers that had done this uh, successfully, and the rates of extravasation were extremely low. And so you start a protocol, and then suddenly you see a rate that at some point it reached close to 9%. And, and this was because of the close auditing from nursing and pharmacy. And it really pauses you to say, should we move on? Uh, and is this just, are we that bad at doing this? And I think that in reality, and we speak about that on the, on the paper, this is due that we became very sensitive to malfunctioning peripheral IVs. And the, the rate of extravasation in our viewpoint is that it's underreported because majority of the time it's not a serious, it's small, and it's just, okay, I'll change the IV. I mean, this seems to be extravasated. They change it, and so you really never know that that is the, that is the case. And with this, we realize that our peripheral IVs uh, leak more than what we thought. Yeah. 
So since you started talking to us about the results, uh, elaborate more on the results. What did you find? And was what, were any of the results a surprise to you? You already mentioned uh, the rate of extravasation, but anything else that came to to both of you attention that you didn't think about before? But I, I think the rate of extravasation did definitely surprise us, as Eduardo had mentioned. Um, we, I think, as he mentioned at one point, thought about, should we even keep doing this? Um, but I, I think one of the things that we sort of rethought through this process is, is it the rate of extravasation that matters or is it the harm associated with extravasation that matters? And I think we came to the conclusion that it's probably the latter. Um, so because we put into place all of these safeguards, we felt like we, we were probably identifying more small extravasations than most of the other literature. We were treating probably a little more aggressively with the, the antidote phentolamine and nitroglycerin that we included in our protocol than um, maybe even we needed to be at times. So we probably overcalled our extravasation rate a little bit. Um, but I think the the thing that we kind of found that also surprised us was despite our extravasation rate being higher than we anticipated, the harm associated that with that was extremely minimal for our patient population. Um, the other one that sort of surprised me a little bit was the total amount of uh, central venous catheter avoidance that we were able to have with this. Um, we weren't able to avoid maybe as many central line days as we thought, but the number of central line insertions in particular that we avoided, I thought was pretty significant. It was actually over half um, of patients actually never needed a, a central line that got started on peripheral norepinephrine. So I think those were the two biggest things for me. Um, Eduardo? Yeah, I would add the other one was the, and, and this needs to be worked a little bit more, but was the transition out of a central line to a peripheral IV. So having the ability now to say, well, the, the patient is at this level of pressures, and we always have those patients that take some time getting off they are recovering, and you have the ability now to remove a line that will not have to be placed again. I mean, it was there were a percent of them that required the line to be placed again, but in reality, um, it allows us to to decrease exposure to plastic inside the vessels uh, or, or the central uh, veins. So that was a good thing uh, from the protocol too. Anything looking back that you would do differently? Uh, well, I think that the uh, if I had to if if we had to redesign this again, uh, I think that we probably would have been a little faster in doing some of the changes, uh, but we, we had obviously COVID hitting us in, mm -hmm. the, in the middle of this. I think that we, uh, I mean, our unit, our medical ICU is 64 beds, and we didn't start it in all, all the units. We actually started in a single area of the of the ICU to, to kind of perfect, and then from there we started expanding to uh, two units and then to the full, the full 64 beds. So now that we know this, yeah, the, on on how to implement it, the question is: Well, how do we continue to to improve? Is there other vasopressors that we could be administering through through here that either we could have uh, put in in our initial uh, initial protocol, 
because now we if we we are going to add something we have to observe what's going to happen I and mean, the, the literature on these things is present and it seems to be safe but i mean we really take this seriously because we want the safety of our patients so those would be the the things perhaps a little bit faster implementation uh if i if i could see through it uh but you know uh, it's monday morning quarterback uh now now i can say that we could have done it faster but at that time it was probably too challenging with everything that we were doing yeah how about you jason anything you would have done differently looking back yeah I, i don't know that i have a whole lot to add to that i think i was maybe one of the breaks on that process a little bit slowing it down <laughs> from expanding maybe as quickly as it could have um and i think looking back as he mentioned we we for sure could have done it faster knowing the results that we have now but i i also don't necessarily regret that we were cautious and that we made sure that it was a safe practice before we expanded um i think one of the the challenges that we'll have now too and i don't know this is necessarily something i regret but i think it kind of to the point in Dr. Morales had made about the workload is that since we've implemented all of these safeguards and all of these components sort of as a bundle we don't necessarily know if one versus another helps protect a patient more than the rest if that makes sense so um at this point i think it would be difficult to remove them without su- substantial study to to make sure that our practice was still safe so um the workload can be a little bit challenging especially if a nurse has for example two patients that have this going at the same time um so i, I think the the only thing that may be a little bit difficult for us is sort of removing some of that workload now that we've implemented it this way Yeah. Yeah, I I I completely uh, agree with that Jason. I I also wanted to 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 voice something uh regarding the implementation process which was um through that whole uh event, uh all those meetings that we had. I remember clearly that day, that day that we were meeting all together in a and it was one of those moments in which should we move forward or stop and the ability to have the team to speak up uh safely and to say their perspectives and where we're moving and what where we're failing and how to do it better was essential i mean we had voices from every single one of the groups and i remember one of our nurses saying i mean if we're going to if we're not going to stop this is because it's not effective and it's not going to achieve what it is but it's not going to be because we couldn't implement it it's we're going to we're going to have to figure out how to to do it safely and how to make the teams uh be able to do it and that's one of those moments that in, for the whole team it kind of changed the mood of the meeting okay let's refocus on how are we going to do this because it made sense it's uh, sometimes you get narrowed in one little single detail and that prevents pro- uh, progress and by letting everybody on the table speak and be uh, be heard it changed the the outcome of this paper and obviously of the care of our patients that's fantastic and um moving forward what what has changed in your ICU and what would you recommend for our listeners in terms of using peripheral vasopressors so there there's a couple of things and i i will speak about the first one i'll ask uh jason to talk about the enterprise but what what this happened is that once that we started demonstrating this 
uh, this expanded to other units within our uh, enterprise. And the goal was that now they now we knew how to do it. We knew how to do it safely. And now other areas that use base suppressors could use it. So there was a document that was created, uh, care paths for our teams to be able to implement this with the full protocol uh, in their areas. So uh, I will ask Jason to talk a little bit about that process, but I would say that the key here is that it's not just saying go ahead and do it, is you have to create a protocol uh, that fits your enterprise and or your institution and that can be audited and monitored. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, so I think that's sort of the the next big frontier for us as sort of a health system. Um, Cleveland Clinic has our, our main campus, but also several other regional hospitals throughout Ohio and even some other states as well. Um, so since we've sort of finalized our auditing of the medical ICU process and come to the conclusion that these are the results we can expect, at least within our population, this has expanded to several other ICU types at, at main campus where uh, Dr. Morales and I both work, but also to, to several of our other regional hospitals. So we've been able to help with their implementation. Our nursing leadership who was heavily involved with this has done a lot of work with helping to train other nursing leaders to then train their staff. Um, I've worked with the, the pharmacy groups at many of these other sites and units to help get the orders up and running and to uh, help them with the auditing process and figuring out how to do all of that. Um, so it's it's been a process that hasn't just impacted our sort of local unit where we work, but many others as well. Um, and then from there, we're also in the sort of early stages of developing, hopefully, a, a health system-wide nursing policy for uh, referral administration of potentially some other vasopressors. Still more to come on that, but um, it's. I, I think the impact of this is starting to go beyond maybe where we thought it would and certainly beyond where we started with this project. That's fantastic. And this is my curiosity in terms of practice. What happens currently if a patient comes, uh, was started on peripheral norepinephrine, but doesn't do better quickly and needs a second presser? What happens now in your practice? Then they get a central line? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, um, we had... Um... Actually, one we, we one of the safeguards that we placed is, uh, as you know, sometimes the patients are getting the pressors through the the peripheral, and they they went beyond the threshold that we had set. And we asked our teams to have a time limit for the amount of time that th those lines had to be placed, uh, because it was not uh, we needed those patients to be sh shifted as fast as possible to a central line safely. Uh, so that we could continue care uh, for them there. So, yes, it's a central line. Thank you. Any any last messages you would like to give to our listeners about your work today? I think one thing that I would say is that this study, I hope, is probably a starting point for the, the use of peripheral vasopressors and that there will be others who can study this. Um, we looked primarily at safety through our study since this was mainly a, a quality initiative here. Um, but if there's anyone out there who wants to do something like a randomized controlled trial comparing peripheral to central and look at the, the overall safety and efficacy of those two practices, I think that would be great. Um, whether you can get funding for that, I don't know, but um, I think it would be an interesting 
trial to see. Um, we think this improves safety, but all of our data still is observational. So I think there's still hopefully more to come and people can build upon this work and help us better understand how to implement this practice in even a, a better way than we are now, hopefully. Absolutely. I think that the, the other uh, outcome that I would like to see as this gets studied further is uh, patient satisfaction uh, with the process. Uh, evidently, having peripheral IVs that are patent and that uh, are constantly available uh, you, you, comes with uh, the discomfort and the process of having to place those. So there has to be a little more uh, understanding of workload, safety, yeah and patient uh, viewpoints on this. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here uh, today in our Chess Journal podcast. We've heard from Dr. Jason Yerke and Dr. Eduardo Mireles, and they talked to us about their work on peripheral administration of norepinephrine, a prospective observational study. Please read their work in our um, journal for this month. And thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us.